are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha, and today we have Brandon as our co-host, and we have Rania Kalik to talk to us about the history of Lebanon. I guess we could just launch right into you talking about some background on, I guess, the recent political history. I'm not sure how much people that are listening know about the political situation in Lebanon, the way that the government's balanced between different sectarian factions. Sure. So Lebanon is a country that had a civil war from 1975 to 1990. It was really brutal. It was different sectarian militias basically fighting each other. And when that war was over, they put in place this Taif agreement, which basically allocated power by sect as a part of just the way the government would function. So the prime minister in Lebanon has to be a Sunni Muslim. The speaker of parliament has to be a Shia Muslim and the president has to be a Christian Maronite. And what this did is it basically, you know, made the government one that rather than being like a normal democracy with one man, one vote is run as a sectarian system where people become dependent on their communal leaders for basic services rather than the state. And I mean, this was kind of a deliberate attempt to keep Lebanon a weak country. And some of this is like remnants of uh, French colonialism in Lebanon, you know, because the French were in charge of Lebanon for a bit when they decided to cut up the Middle East and split it amongst themselves, the British and the French. Um, But anyways, this is the government that ruled the day uh, and still does till now. Um, And it's caused a lot of problems uh, because, of course, like I said, it keeps the central state weak um, and then it encourages uh this sort of identity politicking if you will and then on the other end of things (laughs) i'm just saying you know it's an interesting way to look at identity politics because lebanon does have it like as a part of its constitution um and it doesn't work out so well and also this system of sectarianism has led to like a system of patronage and nepotism and so basically lebanon isn't a place where you become you know, successful on merit. It's about who you know and who you're related to. And it encourages or at least leads to a situation where there's almost always a potential for sectarian clashes. Because basically the warlords that were in power of their militias during the civil war ended up taking over the country and becoming the ruling elites of this government. And they all have their, you know, their their militias became political parties. And so and, and they're all still armed. <laughs> so this, uh, this leads to a constant potential for sectarian clashes, right? So it's a terrible <laughs> idea, the system they put it, that was imposed on Lebanon. But beyond that, Lebanon's economy was also developed in such a way, and it developed isn't the right word, a, a, a sort of Ponzi scheme economy was imposed on Lebanon in like a deal between ruling elites, which is like the sectarian warlords I'm talking about, and international financial institutions, where like the banking industry was basically all Lebanon had to offer. It's a country that produces almost nothing and it imports 80% of what it consumes. And so it has this economy that produces nothing, but that's basically run by the banking industry. And the the head of the central bank, Riyad Salami, in addition to people like Saad Hariri, the leader of the future, I'm sorry, Saad Hariri's father, Rafiq Hariri, who's not alive anymore, um, who's in charge of the future movement party that's also allied with the U.S., as well as people like Nabi Bidhi. And these are just like big names of basically like the sectarian warlord oligarchs that run Lebanon, created this Ponzi scheme economy that enriched them, kept the state weak, and basically created this 
this awful system I'm describing. And it's been 30 years in the making. And eventually that Ponzi scheme came crashing down about a year ago. And I didn't mean to fast forward through all that. I'm just giving you like a brief ex explanation of why Lebanon's government is such a weak and corrupt one that can't even provide basic services like 24 hour electricity. Because with this kind of economy and this sort of system in place, it just, they, basically they have like legalized theft of public funds. And that's how these people got so rich. Like these people are all millionaires and billionaires that I'm describing and they got really rich. But a couple of years ago, a lot of economists and people with brains started to wake up to the fact that something was very wrong with the Lebanese banking system and its economy. And that this banking system where they've invested their money was actually a Ponzi scheme because they were offering these insanely high interest rates to pay back their depositors. And so last year in September, it started to come crashing down. And then you also had in parallel these protests that started, which like led to the banks freaking out and like not allowing people to take their money out of the banks. And then you had like an attempted run on the banks. And then it became clear to people in the country that their money didn't actually exist. So you had this massive wave of like anti-corruption protests last year. But in the midst of all of this, <laughs> You also have a political party that has an armed group called Hezbollah. And Hezbollah exists, um, as I'm sure probably a lot of your listeners know, but in case they don't, Hezbollah exists as a deterrent to the Israelis. The Israelis occupied southern Lebanon for a very long time. And Hezbollah is a Shia group. Southern Lebanon, most of the people who live there are Shia. They were the ones who were the biggest victims of Israel's occupation. And so Hezbollah was a, is a Shia resistance group that came into existence to fight the Israelis. And they did, and they eventually kicked the Israelis out of Lebanon. And, you know, ultimately, their entire point of existence, as they see it, is to protect Lebanon's national security, protect Lebanon's borders, whether it be from the Israelis or whether it be from the collection of jihadist groups the U.S. funded in Syria who eventually tried to come into Lebanon. Hezbollah fought them back as well. So Hezbollah you know, has a huge constituency, but the U.S. and Israel do not like Hezbollah. They label them a terrorist group, but they've also been involved in the, they've also been in the Lebanese government, elected to it since 2005 in order to protect their weapons. So my point of saying all this is amid all this chaos with the economy collapsing last year, you had a lot of forces, political forces in Lebanon, particularly these, these oligarchs that are aligned with the U.S., trying to redirect that street anger against Hezbollah. And they've been trying to do that for the past year. And then fast forward to now, when the economy in Lebanon has collapsed even more, the value of the Lebanese currency has devalued by 80%. The COVID-19 lockdown has led to a further weakening of the economy during this like unprecedented collapse. You know, Lebanon was kind of like almost like a middle income third world country before, but now there's increasing poverty. And then last week, you had this massive explosion that was also a result of all the things I just explained. It was the result of incompetence, government negligence, a weak state, and just massive corruption where for six years, 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate, highly explosive fertilizer, sat at the biggest port in the country in the most densely populated city. There were repeated warnings that this is dangerous and no one did anything about it because of Lebanon's weak bureaucracy and people also kind of had like fighting over who's going to be able to make a profit off of it and not being able to agree to anything. So the, you know, port exploded last week and destroyed the city. I mean, like it's a level of destruction. Like I can't even really convey it in words, but I'm sure lots of people saw the images and video of it and were really horrified. 
and I was there and I'm really happy that I didn't get hurt, but a lot of people did. Um, and this is just like made everything a million times worse. Like it couldn't have come at a worse time. And again, like I mentioned, Lebanon is an import um, dependent country. 80% of it, what it consumes is imported. 80% of what's imported came through that port. The port that's now smoking ash. Yes, it's now gone. Oh my God. You know, this isn't a country, like I said, there was already starting to be shortages because of the economic collapse, because there's a dollar shortage. Uh, people are having trouble importing things like medical equipment and medicines and, and even fuel because these things, you know, the dollar dominates the world and Lebanon buys these things in the dollar and they don't have any. So add to that, now you lost your biggest port, you don't really have an alternative. You know, Lebanon also is a country sandwiched in between, you have the coast, but then you also have Israel, which Lebanon can't trade with because it's an enemy country. You have Syria, you have this huge land border with Syria, but U.S. sanctions are, uh, limit Lebanon's ability to trade with its own neighbor, or they'll be subjected to sanctions too, and also limit, limit Lebanon's ability to trade with Iraq because Syria would be the land bridge to Iraq. So now all it had was this port, and now it's gone. And I mean, like, everything that was stored there is gone. The medicine that was stored there, the wheat that was stored there, the, you know, just, I mean, everything that was coming through that port is gone. And then also, just to mention Syria real quick, a lot of, um, because of the sanctions, Syria has become a very aid-dependent country. All of the aid was coming through Lebanon's port. One, to bypass sanctions because they can't go directly to Syria. And two, that's just where the international aid organizations had set up their logistical operations was at that port because it made the most sense. It was easy, more easily accessible. So there, all their operations were blown up and are gone now. So this is going to also screw Syria as well. So it's just like a huge catastrophe on so many levels. And of course, there's a lot of anger, like rightly so in Lebanon, at the ruling class, at the government. And of course, again, like you had last year, you have these, the, those who are allied with the Americans trying to redirect that anger at Hezbollah and blame Hezbollah for the port explosion. But that's just like the most absurd thing ever because Hezbollah had no control over this port. They do smuggle weapons into Lebanon, obviously, but not through this port. It's like an international port. It's, that would be really stupid to do. And they also, like, the port is located in an area of Beirut that is actually run by their rivals, who happened to be hit, their constituencies were hit the hardest. So, a long-winded answer, but a lot to digest there. No, no, long-winded's good. Um, <laughs> that's a lot of good information. I don't know a ton about Lebanon myself anyway, so that's super most, I mean, Most people don't. It's a, really com it's a really complicated country, and it's a very polarized country, and it doesn't really fit into any box. And like, and it, I mean, it's a country that always has kind of problems, but it's never really at the center of like American imperialism. So why is that? People are like trying now to understand it. And it's good that they are. And so I'm really happy to be able to come on and at least offer you what I can say. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Why, why is it that you think they're not, they've never really been at the center of like American imperial incursions? Well, they have in a way, but Lebanon, you know, unlike like Iraq or Syria, Lebanon is, a, like I mentioned, a very polarized country. So while the U.S. hates Hezbollah, they also have major allies in Lebanon. There's these right-wing parties that are allied with the Americans, allied and funded by the Saudis, though less so now, uh, and, you know, the other Gulf state countries. And that, to the U.S., has always been a very important asset to be, like, a rival and, and to try to be, like, a deterrent from what they perceive 
as Iran taking over Lebanon through Hezbollah. Because the U.S. views everything in the Middle East through the lens of Iran, or at least has for the past several decades. Right. And it doesn't help that Hezbollah embarrassed us pretty badly, like a few times in the 80s, right? I mean... <laughs> Some of the things, you know, some of the things that the U.S. accuses Hezbollah of doing, like, actually happened before Hezbollah really existed as, like, an official organization. So you can't even really, it's like the U.S. does, like, like have this grudge against Hezbollah for the 1980s, but it's not the same organization it was, and that was, it didn't really exist yet in its current capacity at the time. But, like, and also, let's be clear, like, the U.S. was occupying Lebanon when that happened. Like, they came in as an occupying force to help the right-wing militias who were on the side of the Israelis. <laughs> yeah, and abducting, like, a CIA station chief, I mean, yeah. I'm, I, I'm never going to shed any tears over that. I mean, all right, good on them. Well, it's not even shed tears. It's like, it's not, <laughs> like, it's like, it's like the fact that they call that terrorism is so silly to me. I'm like, I mean, you can be upset about it, but, like, we, I, since war. when is attacking military and, like, since when is that terrorism? That is exactly, it's war. You came into a war zone. <laughs> Right. Well, yeah, exactly. It's like the real common thread is just that the United States doesn't like being embarrassed. And I've yeah. gotten the, the feeling for a while that out of maybe any group in the Middle East, Hezbollah seems to be the one that actually kind of intimidates our national security goons a little bit. Well, they're really, I mean, they're really well organized and they, they were a huge pain in the ass. Like they played a huge <laughs> role. They played a really big role. Not just do they like deter the Israelis from taking over their land. They gave Israel like that bloody nose back in 2006, which was embarrassing for both Israel and the U.S., but they also like played a major role in preventing the collapse of the Syrian state throughout the last decade that the U.S. was funding and arming a, a collection of like jihadist groups, like, the, like who were allied with al-Qaeda, the group I thought was supposed to be our enemy, to overthrow the Syrian government. <laughs> and Hezbollah is a really well-organized it's like its own force, you know, and they play, I mean, they were like the shock troops for the Syrian army in many battles and they fought alongside the Russians and they gained a lot of military experience and like conventional warfare throughout that war. And the U.S. doesn't like that and is pissed off about that. And the Israelis are pissed off and scared about that because they've only gotten stronger. So yeah, the U.S. hates Hezbollah, obviously. And at the same time, like Hezbollah, they call them a terrorist organization, but doesn't actually do it doesn't actually commit the kinds of acts that are things that terrorist organizations do. Like it doesn't, like it doesn't blow things up. It just fights back. You know what I mean? For CIA headquarters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're not even organized like an Al Qaeda cell or anything. Right. I mean, they've got like brigades. They're a paramilitary operation. Yeah. Yeah. They're a paramilitary force. And they also don't like, you know, I've lived in Lebanon the last four years. And, you know, they don't impose, they are a religious organization and I'm not very fond of that. Like I'm not a religious person, but, and they're like socially conservative in that sense, but like they don't impose it on any of the areas they control. Like I go to the beach, you know, where there's, where there's like Hezbollah flags. Like you go to the beach in a bikini. Like it's, it's, the point is, is like, they're not Al Qaeda. Like they always get compared to Al Qaeda and ISIS. They're nothing like Al Qaeda and ISIS. And they're an organization that represents a constituency. They don't go into places and impose themselves. They have a huge constituency and they were politically, as a, as a political organization, they have seats in the parliament. They were elected to parliament. It's like the kind of democracy America doesn't like because the results aren't what they want. Um, but Hezbollah won several seats in the elections in 2018 
And they also have formed a coalition with other parties so that they are part of the majority bloc in the Lebanese parliament. And so ever since that happened, the U.S. has not been happy with the Lebanese government, and they've been trying to reinsert their allies into it, like to be in charge of it. And they're still trying to do that right now. <laughs> Rania, can you quickly go over what happened in 2017 with the Lebanese president or prime minister and the resignation scandal, Saudi Arabia? Yeah, so the prime minister, Saad Hariri, the prime minister of Lebanon previously, uh, who's, the, who's the son of Rafiq Hariri, who's responsible for helping create the Lebanese Ponzi scheme economy that everybody was praising until it came crashing down, and who's also a billionaire, I should add, is also a Saudi citizen. He has Saudi citizenship. And huh. he's been an al- a close ally of the Saudis, pretty much like a Saudi puppet, if you will, for most of his career. The, the Saudis have kind of given up on him now. And giving up on him started in 2017, when Hezbollah has been in government since 2005, and they've managed to play this balancing act with their rivals, like Saad Hariri, where even though he's prime minister, like, he doesn't disarm them, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, like, he's still <laughs> an ally of the American, and he also kind of gives cover to them being in government because he's an ally of the Americans and the Saudis. It's like, sort of like a protection from Lebanon being sanctioned because Hezbollah is a part of the government or has members of parliament in, in, or has, has people in parliament. So the Saudis were getting, like, impatient about him not doing anything about Hezbollah, as were the Americans. So they kidnapped him. Like, they kidnapped him. It was when they, remember, they, like, there was that time when Bin Salman kidnapped, like, a bunch of people, like, a bunch of people who he felt threatened by. Uh, oh, like, his relatives. They're, like, we're, they were all in the Ritz Hotel. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. In the Ritz-Carlton. I mean, they were, like, they were, like, held prisoner in the Ritz-Carlton, which doesn't sound so bad to me. <laughs> but Saad Hadid yeah. was, like, he was, like, beaten up. Like, there was, like, stories about how they tortured him, apparently. <laughs> but anyways, he so, like, everyone's like, Saad Hadidi seems to have been kidnapped. And then suddenly he ends up on t- television to give a speech. That was super weird. He looks like there's a gun to his head. Like, he doesn't look well. And he, like, reads out this resignation letter about how he can't be in government anymore. I can't remember if he actually mentioned his bowler or not. He might have. But it was just such a bizarre speech because he just looked like deer in the headlights terrified. And everybody was like, Did he, was he just forced to resign? And like Hezbollah refused to accept his resignation because it was obviously under, you know, he was coerced to do it. Like nobody in Lebanon would accept it. People were so offended. I mean, imagine your sponsors treat you like that. Like that's what like, a, that's kind of like a, so, so it's such a good like, it's an emblematic of the way that the Americans and Saudis and Israel and like countries like this treat their puppets. They treat their puppets like crap. And in this case, the Saudis kidnapped their puppet, tortured him, forced him to resign. And then when he came back to Lebanon, he like unresigned. It was so weird. And then it was <laughs> after that, that the Saudis sort of like, just like divested from him. And so Saad Hariri, he had, he's in charge of the future movement party, which is like this right wing Sunni party. And he's lost so much legitimacy ever since then because a lot of times the support that he has in the streets is something he has to pay for. Like he's got to pay his people to be in the streets for him and to go out and vote for him. And so in the, ne- in the next year in the elections, he didn't have as much resources to do that or as much support because people kind of lost respect for him after that resignation. I bet. <laughs> so his party won fewer seats in parliament after that in 2018 and Hezbollah and the coalition it's a part of won big and then became a majority coalition in the government. And Saad Hariri was still the prime minister 
So still in a sense, as the U.S. felt giving cover to Hezbollah because they weren't going to sanction their own ally. So when the, but when the protest broke out last year, I mean, he got the orders to resign because that, gave the perf- that opened the perfect opportunity to resign and be a part of the opposition with the people. And then all that's lo- left is Hezbollah and its own allies. And so in that way, it becomes a Hezbollah government that the U.S. can like tr- sanction. Oh, Wow. That feels a lot like a color revolution scheme. (laughs) Well, so, I mean, uh, there was a color revolution in Lebanon in, like, 2005. It was called the Cedar Revolution. And it was actually launched by, like, groups that were directly funded by the U.S. And that is actually what formed the March 14 Alliance. So there's this thing in Lebanon. It's, like, March 14 versus March 8. It's these coalitions, if you will. So the March 14 coalition is, like, the future movement of Saad Hariri. The Progressive Socialist Party of Walid Jimblat, which is like the Druze party. It's not progressive or socialist, only in name. And the Lebanese Forces, which is a, like a puppet of the Saudis and the Americans uh, that is under the control of this guy called Samir Jaja, who's like a warlord who actually, he's like a war criminal who actually spent like 11 years in prison in Lebanon because of what he did during the Civil War. Um, but now he's out and he's like, wears a suit. Uh, and on the other side, you had March 8th, which was Hezbollah and its allies, like the Free Patriotic Movement, which is like a Christian party. It's kind of right wing, but also allied with Hezbollah. And then also another movement called the ML Movement, which is headed by Nabi Bidri, who's like one of the most corrupt people in Lebanon and goes back and forth in his allegiances and also sometimes has been an asset for the Americans, but has proven somewhat useful to Hezbollah and being allied with him has sort of prevented them from having like a Shia civil war in Lebanon because they used to fight each other during the war. Lebanon's so complicated. I think there's like a side story to everything. But my point (laughs) is, is the March 14th Alliance came out of this sort of color revolution in Lebanon in 2005 to push the Syrians out because the Syrians had been like a sort of like an occupying force in Lebanon, if you will, for several years after the civil war. And the Americans wanted them out and that got them out. So fast forward to last year when there was these protests that initially started as like legitimate anti-corruption protests demanding like a non-sectarian state that could like be strong and provide basic services for people. Within days, this March 14 alliance, the people I just mentioned, like Samir Jaja, resigned from government to try to say they were a part of the protests and with the protests and part of the opposition. They resigned their people from the cabinet. Then Saad Hariri resigned to be a part of the movement, a part of the protests. And so did Walid Jimblat. He resigned his people. So in that sense, there was a color revolution aspects to it because it quickly became flooded by the supporters of these people, by the, of these warlords. And on top of that, you also have an entire network in Lebanon of, you know, U.S.-backed NGOs and civil society organizations that are funded by the National Endowment for Democracies. NDI, the National Democratic Institute, that receive funding, you know, to supposedly be like anti-corruption organizations. But then whenever there's protests, they're just like, we want the downfall of the regime and we hate Hezbollah, you know? (laughs) And so they were a part of that too. So it was like a mixed bag of protests, but those people, you know, were a part of it. And so that sort of tainted the protests and a lot of Hezbollah's constituency ended up sort of withdrawing from the protests because they didn't want to be a part of something that was calling for their leader to be taken out. So in that aspect, it was, but it also failed because <laughs> it didn't work. The Lebanon ended up like placing its cabinet with like an independent prime minister named Hassan Diab, who everybody called like a Hezbollah ally. But I mean, he wasn't really. He was just kind of not in any political party. 
Um, and then he picked a new cabinet in coordination with the president. And then they sort of took over the government for the past several months since I think January. But they were always like a temporary and weak and ineffectual government. They had trouble passing anything. They had trouble making any reforms to deal with the economic collapse. And then this Beirut explosion just happened and everyone was so angry. And there was protests in the street again. This time, you know, this protests again are mixed. There's people angry they lost their homes. There's people who are loyal to certain political parties and they're, they have agendas. Like they want to like just make it about disarming Hezbollah and blame Hezbollah. And then there's just people who are like poor and using it as an opportunity to loot because they need stuff. So anyways, this has brought down the government again. So Hassan Diab just resigned and so did his whole cabinet. And so now like Lebanon just has a caretaker government and things are even more chaotic now because you need all this aid to come into the country and you don't really have a legitimate government to, to like accept it and pass it out. So it's a pretty dire situation right now. Um, and, und- and honestly, like, I don't know how involved the Americans even need to be to like their allies will do what they're supposed to, you know, they'll be in the streets to protest how the Americans like, and you know, they'll try and maneuver to try and take over the government. Like they always do. But at the same time, Lebanon's kind of like a sinking ship right now. And the Americans can literally just like sit back and just watch it burn. And that's kind of what they're doing. Like they don't even need to do much. I mean, the capital just exploded, you know? With all of our funds tied up in the Lebanese pound and the bulk of our subscribers being held in a Saudi Arabian hotel, though we have been assured of their comfort and safety, our payments have dried up. So please go to historically.substack.com and subscribe to our newsletter and podcast. Along with great content, you'll also have our assurance that we have removed all of your names and addresses. This time. Is there something that we didn't address that you'd like to talk about, that we should talk about? I mean, with the explosion, like, there's still a little bit of, like, shady stuff about it. Like, why was there so much ammonium nitrate on that boat? So it was supposedly, so, okay, this ammonium nitrate supposedly came on this boat owned by some Russian guy that was on its way to Mozambique. And that story just sounds weird. There's some, like, theorizing. There's literally no proof for this. It's pure speculation that it may have been destined for Syrian rebel groups. I don't know how true that is. Mm. I don't have any proof of it. It's just like something that people there, like people there are speculating about. Like, so I don't want to like, you know, pass on some theory and say it's true. It's, I, I have no idea. The official story is that this ammonium nitrate was headed to Mozambique. It was caught. It was, in, the ship was impounded by the Lebanese and what was on board, which was 2,750 tons of this fertilizer that's used in explosives by militant groups was taken off the ship and put into a warehouse in the Beirut port and like left to sit there for like six years. I don't get that. How does that happen? I mean, there's, you can make money. Like you can make money off of this kind of thing. You can get the boat owner to pay you for it. Like I think what makes sense with Lebanon is that they would, I mean, it was crazy. They put it in their port. They probably didn't know how dangerous it was. But I think that people wanted to make money off of it. That would make the most sense with like the way that Lebanese government works. This is an opportunity to impound a ship for violating some maritime rule and make money off of the stuff inside of it or make money from its owner so they can get the stuff back and like, you know, uh, have their crew not be stuck on a ship for a really long time. So basically like this sat in the port. There was warnings about it. 
like over the years, like every six months or so, there'd be someone who'd be like, this is really dangerous. Like you can't, you really shouldn't keep this stuff like in a populated place. And this is not pro this is not how you're supposed to store it. It's very volatile. If it catches fire, it'll explode. Nobody listened. It kind of just got stuck in Lebanon's weak bureaucracy. And Lebanon has a very weak bureaucracy because it has such a weak state. And it sat there, it was just like a ticking time bomb until last week when like what initially happened. So I was there, right? I remember hearing initially that there was a fire at the port. So it seems like there's a couple like stories that have gone around about this. The official story seems to be that there was like a hole in one of the doors to the warehouse where the ammonium nitrate was. And so they were warned that this is really dangerous. You need to go fix it. And so they sent like a group of workers to a construction crew to go fix it. And they had to like weld the door shut. And the sparks from the welding. Oh, Jesus. You gotta be caused, no, 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 it gets worse. It gets worse. The sparks from the welding caused what was next. Like it was, I don't know if it was next door. It was in the warehouse nine, right? Caused like a, caused like a small fire that spread to fireworks that were being stored in a, where, oh, in a warehouse nine. God. The ammonium nitrate was in warehouse 12. And so the fireworks caught fire. And that was burning. There was like a small explosion from that. And that was burning for like 15 or 20 minutes. So I remember I was getting all these messages on WhatsApp that there's a fire at the port. And then of course that, that ultimately that fire in the area where the fireworks were being stored made its way to the ammonium nitrate. And then it was like massive explosion that caused an earthquake in the city and did all this extensive damage. You showed photos from your house there. Wow. And <laughs> yeah, I was really lucky because I was at my friend's apartment who like, for some reason, like it was really random. Like some buildings didn't look like they were damaged, but then most buildings were. And the damage differed by like apartment and by building. Of course, the closer you were in proximity to the port, the worse the damage was. But there was also like wheat silos that because of their location at the port, they were located between where like I live and where my friend's house was and where the port is. And they absorbed a significant amount of the shock that the blast that caused everyone's windows to break was less severe in the area I was in than in other areas. So that was just pure luck. Oh, wow. And my apartment, like, I, you know, as I was at my friend's apartment, there was like, it shook, like an earthquake. It was really scary. And then we were like, what the fuck was that? And then all of the windows just blew open at the same time. And we were all sort of pushed back by this weird blast. And then there was this massive like explosion sound because the sound travels uh, slower. And initially everyone was like, was that a car bomb? Cause like that's, that's happened in Lebanon before. It's been a long time, but there used to be like car bomb assassinations. So people initially thought, was that a car bomb? Were we bombed by the Israelis? Was that an attack? But then once everyone came outside and saw how the damage was extensive in the, like the entire city was damaged, then it became, and then we looked up and saw this plume of smoke, this like red smoke in the sky. And then it became clear that the port exploded because it was on fire and it damaged the entire city. And, you know, my apartment is like a kilometer away from where I was. And it was more badly, it was actually, it was pretty badly damaged, but like less so than other people's. The biggest problem in my apartment was the glass broke, which is what happened to a lot of people. The glass, like from this door I have that has glass windows in the door, shattered in these massive pieces and small pieces everywhere across the entire living room and dining room. In fact, you know, I, the area I sit and I work was just covered in these huge shards of glass that had I been there, 
Like I would have been severely injured or, or died. Like, and that's what happened to people. They were like, there was like a lot of amputations. There was a lot of like glass in the face and the eye and just shards all over the body. There was a lot of like, you know, big piece of glass stuck in the stomach kind of things or in the head. Like it was, you know, people were injured in really awful ways. And it was a lot of it was glass injuries or furniture breaking on people. So I was really lucky I wasn't there. And you know, the reason I wasn't there was because there's, we've had these massive power cuts in Beirut because of the, we have like a fuel crisis because of the economic collapse and just the mismanagement of the government that were lasting up to 20 hours a day. And the generators, most people have like a generator they rely on, but the generators couldn't pick up the slack for 20 hours. So there would be hours in the day where we just wouldn't have electricity. My friend had electricity when I didn't. So I was like, oh, I can't work like this. So I got up and went to her house. That's literally the only reason I wasn't there. So ironically, all the complaints I made about the power cuts, I have to like thank them because otherwise I would be, you know, I would have had to like be in the hospital or worse, but like other people just, you know, it was random injuries. It depends where you were and how you were standing and what you were standing next to just totally random and just like awful, just awful. Like I've never, I've just never seen so much, so much devastation. You know, I've been to Syria, I've been to Iraq. I've seen like neighborhoods destroyed, like in a really awful way, but it's something that took years to happen. This was like an entire city damaged in a matter of seconds, you know? It was so, it's like, I'm still kind of like in shock about it. And it was really disorienting. And just the level of like suffering was so immense. I can't even, it's bad. And like, it's just going to get worse. What about the COVID-19 situation? Is How is it there? So the COVID-19 situation in Lebanon was under, it was under control because Lebanon closed its airport. Lebanon has, I didn't stay for it. I actually left because I got really freaked out when the pandemic started and I just like wanted to be with my family. And so I came back to the States for a bit because I didn't know how things were going to go there. Lebanon has a very weak healthcare system. And also again, the economic collapse has led to shortages uh, where even private hospitals aren't aren't able to import some of the stuff they need. So like, I was like, well, if I get this, I don't know how bad it'll be. I don't want to have to be treated somewhere where like, you might not get the treatment you need. So but actually Lebanon ended up shutting down its airport back in March. And as a result, like they had almost no COVID cases. I mean, compared to other places, I think by July, before they opened the airport, they had like a thousand cases and like maybe a dozen deaths or something like very, very small compared to everywhere else, which makes sense. Cause they were, you know, they were like contact tracing, even though the government sucks and is like completely weak and stupid they managed to like keep this under control because they had no choice. They, had a, they did like a massive lockdown because they had no choice because otherwise a surge there would like ruin, would collapse the healthcare sector. So then they opened the airport only to a certain number of travelers a day in July. And that's when I went back. And because people were coming in, they were bringing cases with them, but they still had it under control because they were contact tracing. But in the last like three weeks, they started, it started to get a little bit out of control for Lebanon where they were having like 150 cases a day and it was because of community spread. And so just before this explosion, the COVID-19 situation had already started to kind of overwhelm the Lebanese hospitals because just because they're so weak. And so you can imagine that, you know, there was three hospitals that were destroyed by this blast. There were other hospitals, every other hospital was full of injured people. Uh, not everybody was thinking about the pandemic when they went to the hospital because of the immediate, you know, shock of what just happened. So people weren't wearing masks as much. 
So no question. And now, now the numbers are getting higher. It's like almost 300 a day. So there's no question that COVID-19 is probably going to get a little bit out of control in Lebanon. And they, cer- they certainly do not have the resources to deal with that. I hope it doesn't get bad, but, you know, it's kind of like the last thing on their minds now because of everything else that happened. Can we quickly change gears? Because I kind of want to talk about how you've been targeted and canceled because of your pro-Palestine. Like, so tell us that story. (laughs) Well, yeah, you know, I, like, my career as a journalist, you know, I started out covering criminal justice issues and, like, prison issues. But I kind of ended up moving into, like, Palestine stuff uh, because that's something I really care about. You know, I come from the region. I grew up you know, going to protests for Palestine. And like, I was just raised with that mentality in my household. I grew up watching the country. My parents are from Lebanon be bombed by Israel. So anyways, it was a real issue really close to my heart. And so I, I used to, I was working at the electronic intifada and that, you know, working at a place called that gets you attacked. Being anti-Zionist gets you attacked. Yeah. So I was kind of used to it that I was used to, but I would say I never really got canceled until I started speaking out against what the U S was doing in Syria in 2016. Like I, that has been something that has gotten me more hatred, harassment, and like attempts to screw with my ability to have a job way more than the Palestine stuff did, which I know is really odd. (laughs) The funny thing is, I know the minute we release your interview, like when we release Max's interview, we're going to (laughs) get some of the backlash. (laughs) I can't wait to get blocked by Oz Caterjee for the sixth Um. (laughs) he doesn't block you man he just Oz is like I'm convinced he's like several people nobody can tweet that much no one person it's it's like a computer he's a computer algorithm he has to be (laughs) well once okay so I was like he was talking about Assad's war crimes and I asked him how come you don't talk about the moderate rebels war crimes and then I showed him the video where they behead this 12-year-old kid. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and then he, his excuse was, it's actually uh, an adult. With the he genetic aging disorder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's Benjamin Button. Yeah. But, but, you know, but even if that's true, like, does that make it okay that they beheaded him? Like, like that's, that's the crazy part is the fact that, like, they're like, it's okay to behead adults. Like, what the, what's wrong with you? Like, what is wrong with you? I draw the line of beheading minors, yeah. Yeah, and, and then they had the, he put this, like, <laughs> obviously photoshopped picture where the, where the kid's head is bigger than the building. <laughs> He's like, look how big his head is. But, like, <laughs> the, no, the serious stuff is crazy, though, because do you guys remember when, like, that Syrian rebel ate someone's lung or something? No, I don't. On video? What? Oh, my God. What? Back in like 20, like third, I want to say 2013, but maybe it was 2012. That's when I knew there was something like super wrong with the rebels. <laughs> this one rebel, like on video, ate like he, uh, there was like some dead Syrian soldier that they had killed or something. And he like, t- he, he ate, he took a bite out of one of the guy's internal organs. I don't remember if it was like the liver uh, or the heart. It wasn't the heart, I don't think, but people kept like saying, saying it was the heart. But he, t- he literally took Jesus. a guy's organ out and took a bite out of it and then did some crazy shit on camera. And it was all over the news. Like, you can go look it up. Just look up, like, Syrian rebel eats liver or something. Oh, my God. Hold on. Um, it's a, I, okay, I just put Syrian liver, rebel eats. And it says, cannibal moderates who cut out and ate Assad soldiers' heart and liver. 
Maybe it was the heart then, but yeah, it was, that's crazy. Yeah, there's a video. I don't, I don't, I don't recommend you. Watch. Okay, okay, okay. There's a video. Critical don't support for Syria's moderate cannibals. <laughs> moderate. <laughs> <laughs> but like, but they did, they did crazy stuff like that, like all the time. I don't know how many times they ate an internal organ, but like, God. they would just like they would like lynch people, throw people off buildings, like just go into neighborhoods that cause all kinds of chaos. You know, threaten to kill all the Alois and you know send the Christians to Beirut. They had like a chant about that because they were like extremists. They were like religious extremists. That's who the U.S. was backing. And that's who like the New York Times was celebrating as like freedom fighters. And they did this for like eight years. Like even when it was clear it was Al-Qaeda or some group with a different name that behaves just like them, they would like excuse it because Assad's war crimes. I mean, it was just so absurd. And, you know, once I started, I was really, I think it was 2016. I was really worried Hillary Clinton, I assumed she was going to win like everybody else. And she promised she was going to do a no-fly zone in Syria. To the bankers, right? Like, yeah. That part confused me, but never mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was really weird. She did. She was at like some, like some one of her banking speeches, like one of the JP Morgan speech or something where she said that. But she was like saying that it was her intention was to enforce a no-fly zone, which would have been a no-fly zone for freaking Al-Qaeda. That would have given air cover to Al-Qaeda to basically do what the rebels in Libya did, which is like take over the country and then turn it into an extremist laden hellhole. A slave market. Where they have yeah. slave markets, yeah. And like a bunch of different competing factions just shooting each other all the time. And so I was really worried about this because I have family in Syria. And, you know, Syria is basically like, Lebanon is basically a little slice of land next to Syria. And so, and Lebanese people all have relatives in Syria because they like used to be a part of the same place before like a bunch of colonialists came and drew lines. So anyways, um, and I come from a minority group and like, you know, gr the groups the U.S. was funding like to kill us <laughs> and, and, and like in their, you know, in their, in their belief system, they can enslave us if they want. So like, that was a problem for me. So I started speaking <laughs> out like about, you know, what the U.S. is doing in Syria. I eventually took a trip there with a bunch of other Western journalists and I got attacked for it, even though the Western, the other journalists from like the big outlets didn't. Um, and I ended up losing my job. I ended up having to resign from the electronic intifada oh because my. of it. I did not know that. I remember that. Yeah. That, was, that was ridiculous. Yeah. But because like all these people who care about Palestine, like they don't, not all of them, but like there's a big portion of them who like, they have the right idea about like Israel colonization and Zionism's racist and bad but they don't have an understanding of imperialism in the rest of the region. Like they don't even understand the fact, like the important role that the Syrian state, whether you like Assad or not, doesn't matter. The Syrian state has played a huge role in uh, resistance to Israel. You know, they like are allied with Iran. They're allied with Hezbollah. They have like a working relationship with these people. They allow Palestinian resistance groups to have bases in Syria. Like, this is, this is one of the reasons Syria is a problematic country. Like the U.S., like it's in, you know, they don't understand the U.S. doesn't care about authoritarianism. The U.S. just cares about, you know, if a country wants to take a path that is independent of U.S. interests or in any way challenges U.S. interests, then they are like an official enemy and they will be destroyed. That's the American spirit. Um, and that's the American view of the region. And that's why Syria was targeted. Not because Assad commits war crimes or tortures people or not because Syria is a police state. I mean, all things which are probably true, but it doesn't matter, that's not the point. The point is that Syria was a functioning state. I mean, Lebanon, for example, is such a weak state. Nobody knows how to drive right. Um, <laughs> and the roads suck. 
you know? And like, even when I was a kid. That sounds like totally familiar. Actually, <laughs> yeah, right. I, <laughs> <laughs> but, like, but like, I remember being a kid and I would go visit, like I would go visit Lebanon with my family uh, when, we would, when we would save enough money for them to go see their relatives there. And we would go take like a day trip to Damascus. And cause it's like, it's just like a, not a far drive um, from Beirut or from where my parents are in Lebanon. And so we would take this day trip to Damascus. And I remember always being like mesmerized because I would go from like really chaotic driving where they don't stay in the lines and everybody drives like they want to kill each other because there's no like traffic laws enforced to like really orderly highways where people drive like they do in America, for example. <laughs> and there's like traffic lights and you know, people actually stop at stop signs, like these kinds of things. And they actually pick up the trash. Like Lebanon doesn't have a functioning waste management system. Did Lebanon have a garbage strike? Yes. Of- yeah. Lebanon had a garbage crisis where they like couldn't figure out how to pick up the trash because like instead they would put all this money into waste management, but really a bunch, all these oligarchs I mentioned earlier would just steal it. Uh, and they wouldn't actually collect trash with it. But the point is to say that like, <laughs> even if a country has a shitty leader that some people don't like and it's authoritarian, there's something to be said about having a functioning state like that can pick up the trash, that can fund your schools, that can pave the streets and enforce traffic laws and make sure people don't eat each other. And that's what the U.S., when it goes into places like Syria or Iraq or Libya, ends up destroying. They don't end up making anything better. They just destroy that so that what all you have left is some anarch, like some like, you know, anarchist paradise, if you will. Of autonomous zones. Rojava. <laughs> <laughs> right. Where like a bunch of militias run this area and another militia runs that area and you have to pay bribes to get through this checkpoint. It's like this like miserable situation. And then where your economy is destroyed because like the U.S. doesn't want you to have a functioning economy. So nobody has jobs anymore when you become dependent on international aid. And it's just like a disaster. And people like Oz Katterjee are the ones who support war crimes. Because they support war crimes against the entire, like against Syrian people. They support the destruction of the fabric of Syrian society. And they support a bunch of religious extremists destroying the country, taking over people's homes, killing minorities. Like, it's just so absurd the way it gets turned around on people like us. But like, all that to say is that has, of course, followed me. Like, I can't even write an article or like make a video about the Democratic primary without being called an Assadist. Like, something that has nothing to do with Syria. Like, Gabbard was asked, like, an extraordinary amount of times whether she was an Assadist, like, until... Like, yeah, she, by Kamala Harris, or by everyone, by all the media. And she was like, they were like, well, you call Assad a war criminal. And she was like, sure. And they were like, is he your friend? And she was like, no. And they were like, are you an Assadist? Like, it's just doesn't stop. It's wild. She was never going to break out of the primary. I mean, good lord. <laughs> This president has chosen to double down and triple down on an alliance with Saudi Arabia, a country that is the number one propagator of the uh, radical wasabi, uh, uh, Wahhabi Salafist ideology that fuels terrorist groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, uh, a country that both directly and indirectly supports Al-Qaeda in countries like Yemen and Syria. Uh, and secondly, this president is... Uh, double down on support for al-Qaeda and continuing this regime change war in Syria, even threatening to use our own military uh, to respond to anyone who tries to attack al-Qaeda in the city of Idlib in Syria, where they are 
in control of and have their stronghold. This is deeply concerning to all of us as Americans, but for me, especially as a soldier who enlisted after the attacks on 9-11 to go after al-Qaeda, that terrorist group that took thousands of lives on September 11th. This is a huge betrayal to all of us, to all of our service members, to all of those first responders on 9-11, to every family that lost a loved one on that day. Congresswoman, do you not believe that the same could be said for your meeting with Bashar al-Assad? If it means working so with people who with do people things like that we Stalin find or meeting with Bashar al-Assad, but not necessarily meeting with the leader of Saudi Arabia or supporting or, or, having, not, meet, or, or having a relationship sure. with them. Like that lady was almost advocating for Saudi Arabia to present the interview. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like she actually was like trying to figure out what the difference between MBS and Assad was. And I'm like, does Assad behead juveniles for protesting? <laughs> no, but you know who does? Apparently they're Syrian rebel groups. <laughs> yes. And MBS too. <laughs> you know, there also was, like Charles Lister didn't have a problem with Assad when we were rendering uh, people to him under the during the Bush years. Funny how that works. Oz never said a word about it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That was something helpful to American imperialism, which makes it not a bad thing. And there was a period of time right. like when Hafez al-Assad, his father, Bashar al-Assad's dad died and, and Bashar took over. There was a lot of excitement even in the West about him because he actually like liberalized the Syrian economy a bit meaning he allowed like international economic interests to come into the country, <laughs> unlike his father. Right. Uh, so there was a lot of excitement from, I remember like, you know, there's a lot of leaders like the Clintons, I think, met him and liked him. You know, he was educated in the UK. He wears like a suit. He's really good with interviews. I just... Right. Except the lisp. That's why he's been blacklisted, actually. Like, he's like, has a really soft voice. And <laughs> there's nothing intimidating about him. Like, because <laughs> you see these. <laughs> it was like Barbara Walters' interview. Yay. Well, wait, where she was like, I maybe, hang on, maybe, maybe. She, okay, she, she starts with, Do you allow foreign journalists to come to Syria? <laughs> Mr. President, you have invited us to Damascus, and you have not given an interview to the American media since this crisis began. What is it you want us to know? I would like to reiterate what I used to say after 11th of September to every American delegation I met. First of all, I think the American people should know more about what's happening beyond the ocean. Second, the American media, I would like them to tell only the truth about what's happening in the world. And for the American administration, don't look for puppets don't in the world, only deal with administration that on people that can tell you know about the truth because what's happening in the world now is taking the world toward chaos. What we need now is we need to deal with the reality. So th the message now is about the reality. Tell me what the reality here is, your country is. It's, what is the reality? It's too so complicated. It takes hours to talk okay. about. Okay, then I will ask my So let's be specific. Okay. Can outside foreign reporters come? They have not been allowed. No, they were allowed, and you are here. <laughs> I, I am here. Well, what's funny about Assad, too, is, like, it's harder to make him into a villain. Yeah. Because, like, with, like, with Gaddafi, he's just so kooky and dresses so weird. Like, <laughs> he just, like, looks weird. It's easy to make him into one. With Saddam, Saddam would just be, like, kill, you know, death to America and be wearing this, like, military suit and look really scary and Arab. And so it was easy to make him into a villain. But then, like, Assad just has, like, on a really nice, uh, suit 
And like, he's got this soft voice and this like lisp. You she know? has an NPR voice that's like <laughs> doing thing. Uh, of course, there's uh, insight and uh, the solution is very uh, clear. It's simple yet impossible. Okay, I'm gonna get in trouble. Can you cut this, please? You're gonna get in so much trouble because you meditate to Assad interviews. <laughs> but like, but regard, like, but regardless of like all those things, like again, like Syria's got a lot of problems and it did have a lot of problems with its government. But like, so does every other Middle Eastern country, many of which we're friends with. So it's just so absurd that like people have managed to push this idea quite successfully that like Syria is somehow special or unique in its hideousness or something. It's like, yeah, Syria tortures, but like, so does everybody else. It's actually way better than Saudi But like, Yeah, and they, it's way, oh my God, I'd, would you rather live in Syria? Assad goes and celebrates Christmas, like in, like you see with him with the Christmas tree and dressed as Santa Claus. Saudi Arabia is li like literally is like if you gave a Syrian rebel group a state. Like Saudi Arabia is, they like behead people in the street and then they hang up their bodies on cranes for several yes. days after for people to see so that they don't do whatever that person did. They like last time they beheaded somebody like that. What that guy did, like he allegedly killed somebody, which I highly doubt. Yeah, but that guy was like tortured that he was basically a vegetable, and then they beheaded this like guy who's oh. paralyzed. Yeah. Or like you've seen when they beheaded like a migrant worker, like they'll be oh god, a that was horrible. Yeah, street. Yeah, but like it really. But that's those are the ta those are the kinds of things that you would see the rebel groups do because of the ideology that that Saudi Arabia enforces which is wahhabism that they've spent billions of dollars spreading around like the sunni muslim world and that's one reason why you have these kinds of groups they're getting their ideology from saudi arabia it's salafi jihadism it's in saudi arabia's freaking textbooks like <laughs> they teach at you know they that saudi textbooks teach that christians and jews and shias are all infidels and particularly shias they should be killed like that's the same rhetoric you hear from the guy who ate the heart, you know? God, um, right. And, and it's totally reasonable that all of those groups would prefer that Assad stay in power since, like, <laughs> since this, if the Syrian government is the only thing protecting, like, a lot of them in Syria. Yeah, like, if, uh, listen, if my choices were between Donald Trump as president and, like, some, you know, the people in Handmaid's Tale... No, seriously, the people in Handmaid's Tale taking over my area, I would choose Donald Trump's government. Like, it's like, I'm, and I'm not even saying that Assad, it's like, that's the comparison. I'm just like trying to, like, that's like the sort of like Western perspective. Like if your city was being shelled and like a bunch of KKK were trying to take over it, although in this case, Trump might support the KKK. But like, but like regardless, like you want some sort of state to protect you. It doesn't matter what that state is. You want some sort of state to protect you and your family and to like stay in power because your options are freaking like Mad Max, religious extremist, Handmaid's Tale hellhole, or like a functioning state that sucks, but is still better than this, you know? So like that was, that's the choice people have. Right. What is it the libs always say? Vote for the lesser evil? Yeah. It's like, this is like as lesser <laughs> evil as it gets. Like, <laughs> and in this case, yeah, no question that, like, the lesser evil is not Al-Qaeda. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
So, um, but didn't you like get Temple University appearance or something like that? Oh yeah, yeah. So with the whole like, I I was still like, I, it was funny. I was being invited to talk about Palestine and like Israel's criminal occupation of Palestine, and that has nothing to do with Syria. But after I did the whole like trip to Syria with again like all the Western journalists, and I got attacked and I had to resign from EI, I was like invited to go do speaking stuff and then I would almost immediately it would get canceled because whatever like pro-Palestine group invited me would get flooded with angry professors and other like angry like little you know pro-Syria uh, rebel student activists some like people from local organizations that were part of the whole like you know overthrow regime change movement uh, insisting that I be uh, like deplatformed and disinvited and they would put so much pressure on these groups that ultimately they would capitulate because they didn't really know what was going on. And that's the thing, that's the problem with the way that Palestine solidarity has become. It's really great that it's, it is becoming more mainstream, which I do think is really good. But what's the worth of that if it's detached from everything else happening in the region? Palestine is, is not like, like mutually exclusive from the rest of the region. It's all connected. It's all connected. And when you're attacking the groups and the countries that do the most, not in rhetoric, you know, do the most like actual in actual tangible ways to act as a deterrent against Israel, when you're attacking that or, or, or trying to like pretend that all of that isn't happening, doesn't exist because it makes you uncomfortable, then you're actually doing a disservice to the cause of Palestine. Like Hezbollah, I'm not saying you have to go out and like wave a Hezbollah flag and support it, but you really shouldn't be like, like pushing right-wing talking points about Hezbollah that aren't true because you're just doing Israel's job. Like you are, Hezbollah is one of the biggest debtor, like deterrents in the region against Israeli aggression. And that sh like, and you can't just pretend that's not happening. You can't pretend the U.S. and Israel aren't attacking Hezbollah. You can't pretend the U.S. and Israel aren't attacking Syria. If you do, you're doing, you're, you really are. And if you, and the other thing that's funny to me is local groups in the region, Palestinians in the region, the like leftist Palestinian groups support the Syrian state. That doesn't mean they support Assad, but they explicitly and openly and strongly so like always release statements supporting the Syrian state because the Syrian state is important to the Palestinian cause and the rebel groups trying to take over Syria are actually pro-American. And many of them collaborated with the Israelis at the border at the Golan Heights. So Palestinians in the region recognize and understand that. But like that gets totally lost on people who are mostly well-intentioned here, but like don't understand that this whole region is connected. I, yeah, I've noticed that in our Palestine chat too. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are a lot of American progressives who are just like, just weirdly gullible about every time the United States, I mean, I don't know, you and I have complained about this, Isha. Like, like it, it's like, okay. We, yes. Every time a government is overthrown, it, it, it's like they never learn. Just like no. zero, just object permanent. I mean, to be fair, to be fair to them, it's like they're up against a lot. Like there is a network of journalists and think tankers who make things really confusing. Like, That's it's true. really hard, if, unless you, like, are living there or, like, actually know who to read. 
you know, because it's hard, it's hard to know what's happening in places, especially like in a place like Syria that was so complicated. And there's so much propaganda, like people are just flooded with all this intense propaganda. And so, I mean, I kind of see my job as breaking, as, as attempting to break through that and explain things in like a digestible way that people can understand. And I hope, you know, it works, but because I do that, it invites a lot of like attacks by people who are paid to do that. They're paid to confuse and to push actual disinformation. And I mean, look at the gray zone. You mentioned like you had Max Blumenthal on, like the gray zone is constantly being attacked by the same network of people because of the kind of reporting that they're doing. Yes. Yeah, they are. And that's why they're being attacked. And that's, and it confuses people. It confuses people and makes them think, oh, this outlet's being called like crazy. I'm not going to read it. So I, I think like it's unfortunate that this is the case because you think like after the Iraq war and after all the disasters that came after it, people would like wake up to the fact that like the U.S. is not an altruistic force and it has like a nefarious agenda and doesn't actually want to bring anything good anywhere, just wants to control everything and make it worse. Like you would think that that would be the lesson people would take away, but I feel like it's actually gotten more difficult and people have gotten dumber about foreign yes, policy. they have. Yeah, it's gotten a lot worse. It's gotten way worse. I don't even understand. If you're like really dumb, but like I just don't understand why you don't just start with like <laughs> MSNBC lie opposite. And like, then, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, just like, like I don't understand if you're like really dumb, like and you said the US is always wrong. You'd be right. Like I can't think of when you'd be wrong. <laughs> At the very least, you'd think dumb libs could be like, oh, wait, this is Trump's foreign policy. I hate Trump. I would I would even take that. I would settle for that. Instead, they're like, wow, I agree with Mike Pompeo. I agree with Mike Pompeo's take. He's right about China. Mike Pompeo's (laughs) returning dignity to foggy bottom. Thank God. (laughs) Finally, finally. Listen, you guys, I really I this is so much fun. I'm glad I finally got to come on. And I really appreciate you having me on. Um, I hope people still care about Lebanon when you put this out because I feel like it's sort of fading. Well, one thing, uh, how will people find you? Where do you write? Do you have like a link or something like how they can help you? Well, like, the best thing to do, I think, was to follow follow me on Twitter at Rania Kalik. I have a website at Rania Kalik, which I haven't really updated. So that was probably not the best thing to share. But I'm a host uh, and writer for uh, the Soapbox channel, which you can follow on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. Well, actually, Soapbox on Twitter is in the now. And you can follow my stuff there. I'll try to update my website more, but I write for the gray zone sometimes as well. But the best thing to do, follow me on Twitter. Okay, please do that because Rania is one of the best journalists around. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And your, yeah. and your podcast with you, that you and Kevin do is great. It's honestly one of the first ones that I subscribe to. <laughs> oh, cool. I was looking for like leftist or progressive like commentary, anything to tell me about what's going on in the world. And back in like... <laughs> early 2016 and uh, I think y'all were like one of the first actual lefty ones I found. <laughs> That's so cool to hear. I love that. So no, thank you for mentioning that. I'm really bad at like advertising things. I also am a co-host for the <laughs> Unauthorized Disclosure podcast, which you can follow on Patreon, on, you know, Apple Store, SoundCloud, uh, and uh, what's the other one? Spotify? That's yeah, we'll, we'll put yeah. the links there. Um, yeah, that's what I was trying to get at, but that's fine. <laughs> and I really, like, I thank you so much for having me on. I know we tried to, like, we talked a long time ago about doing it, and then I, like, I'm kind of crappy about getting back sometimes, but I'm really glad we finally got to do this. You guys are great. This was actually fun. Thank you so much. You guys have a great night. Thanks, you too. Bye, Rania. Bye, guys. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T.
T E C H. And thank you for listening to 